0: Hello, Massachusetts and beyond. This is Ed Markey, and you're listening to Markey on the Mic. On the mic with me today is Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. And we're talking about the disproportionate impacts COVID-19 has on people within the criminal justice system and why decarceration is critical to keep both inmates and prison workers safe. I hope you will enjoy this important conversation. Share it far and wide and subscribe to hear more Marky on the mic. Markey on the mic. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, we have a fabulous special guest today, district attorney Rachel Rollins of Suffolk County Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, she is just an absolute um, superstar uh, that kind of operates at the intersection of compassion and competence. Uh, She knows how to actually do both perfectly and uh, is creating a new way not only for Massachusetts and Boston to think about criminal justice, but the whole country. She's become the model, and it is uh, a thrill for me to have her on so we can have this uh, conversation at this time, Uh, and for all of you who are watching, let us continue to protect our first responders, the doctors, the nurses. Uh, the people who are delivering groceries to our house, or food to our house, uh, the people who are in the supermarkets, uh, behind the counter, uh, the people who are driving the buses in sanitation. Uh, we, we can Skype in, we can Zoom in to our workplace, but you can't Skype into a job uh, working as a cashier. You can't Skype in to being a bus driver. Those people are showing up uh, and they are running the risk of contracting coronavirus and bringing it home to their families. So the least we can do is to protect them by staying sheltered uh, to not making the problem any worse. And we just wanna thank all of them for everything that they're doing for our families, but we have to protect their families as well. So thank you uh, all so much. And uh, and Rachel, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how how coronavirus has changed the way that the Suffolk County District Attorney Office is working? What what, uh, what have you had to do to adjust to this new era?
1: Yeah, so first of all, Senator, thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be speaking with you and you know um, how much I Uh, Just adore you as a person, but not only all the work you do for us every single day. So thank you Um, it, It has changed almost everything, you know, certainly crime doesn't stop even in a global pandemic. So the Boston Police Department, the Revere, Chelsea and Winthrop Police Departments, the MBTA Police Department, as well as the state police and those are all of my law enforcement partners in Suffolk County, Senator they are all still actively out there working and interacting with the communities um, when harm happens or when they need assistance. Um, what we did immediately, Senator, was I have an amazing staff. My chief of staff put us on um, a one-week work, one-week off work schedule where we broke our, um, our office down almost into essential uh, employees that had to show up, for example, for arraignments, right? Um, Or had to show up in the courts that are actually still open when people were physically going into courts and not having digital or remote um, Or telephonic arraignments or bail reviews or hearings like that. So we immediately handled our personal staff of which I have a little bit over 300 that I'm responsible for. And then we started thinking about our grand jury and our special grand jury that are out there that I have some responsibility over as well. And then we reached out to our criminal defense lawyers and partners to say, what are we gonna do about the prisoners? Um, Certainly, Senator, the pretrial detainees who have not been found guilty yet, but even those hard conversations about some individuals that are sentenced and post-conviction might be more exposed Um, potentially due to underlying health issues um, or being immunocompromised or other things like that, that their sentence didn't include potentially dying of COVID-19. So we've started thinking really big and differently. We've engaged a lot of people that are way smarter than I am to ask for their input on this, like health professionals, um, as well as others. And, um, And we are are open to listening and adapting really quickly
0: so you have uh, some of these people who are in pre-trial they haven't even had a trial yet Yep. so so how are you handling people who haven't even had a trial uh but might be exposed to coronavirus so what is the way in which you're thinking about how you handle people like that because catching coronavirus is the equivalent of a death sentence for too many people, especially people who come from a lower income groups, people who are minorities, people who may not have a great healthy condition to begin with. So how are you handling that?
1: Right. And as we know, Senator, we look at, look at the data, the data show right now that of all of the over 350 about cities and towns in Massachusetts, number one, of exposure, Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is part of Suffolk County. When we look at Boston, it's Hyde Park, Dorchester, Mattapan, and East Boston, working class places with some exceptionally wealthy individuals, but a lot of individuals that are living paycheck to paycheck or might have food or housing insecurity. So what we did was we said, certainly with respect to pretrial detainees, Unfortunately, Senator, we still have situations where if people are given a bail, even a $500, $1,000 bail, where somebody maybe, you know, is able to, if they are more affluent, without the blink of an eye, put up that $500 or $1,000, they will be out on bail and they'll be able to walk themselves in to their next court hearing. But if you're an individual that that $500 is no different than $5,000, or 500,000, right? You unfortunately are going to go to the Suffolk County House of Corrections and you are going to be held there until you can pay your bail even before you've been guilty of found guilty of anything. There's another category senator of people that we consider dangerous and the commonwealth has to prove quite a bit before we, and we have to have a hearing called a dangerousness hearing, where even though you haven't been found guilty, we prove to a judge that you fall into a small, I hope, category of people that are too dangerous to be released, even though they haven't even been found guilty yet. And what I've said is, with my partners at Public Defenders, which in Massachusetts we call CPCS, or an organization called MACDL, the Mass Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, we've been reaching out to them from the very beginning to say get us your list of clients that overwhelmingly might not have committed a violent or a serious crime but who have an underlying you know cdc based Mm -hmm. um, high risk factor right they're over 50 years old they're immunocompromised or have some sort of a respiratory um, underlying medical condition get us those individuals and we'll see what we can do with them. And Senator, we're proud that we've, since this happened, our numbers are, we have reviewed over 630 cases um, since the state of emergency was uh, put into place by the governor, 563 of those were pre-trial cases. Uh-huh. Um, and of those we've reviewed, we've assented to about 200 of them, meaning we've looked at what the defense bar sent us and we've said you know what we think that's a solid argument we agree with the conditions you've put forward with respect to this individual and we think that he or she can comport with the rules of society and not harm when they are out in community and that we believe that they will come back on their own they've proven to us they can and before or certainly there's nothing in their record that shows us that they wouldn't but there have been Um, several, Senator, that we've stood up and said, no, unfortunately, this individual cannot, has proven that they cannot be safe when they return to our community, even though there's a public health issue that they personally are experiencing, or that we are trying to flatten the curve, their risk to public safety is too high. Um, and I'll just end with before the next question, but that doesn't mean I still think they should die of Mm COVID-19 where they're at the Department of Corrections or the House of Corrections. We need our sheriffs and our Secretary of EOPS, which is the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security, Secretary Turco, who I speak with often and do respect quite a bit. We need those leaders to stand up and say, If we are only at 53% occupational capacity, then let's, instead of housing two to three prisoners in a cell, let's put one in each cell so that we are flattening the curve and not putting people at a higher risk of contracting a virus. Just because they can't be safe in our community doesn't mean we forget who they are when they're behind the wall.
0: So, so by granting uh, the petition to keep many of them out it then creates more space in the prison system to get people into individual cells and away from other prisoners. Right, and what's great
1: is public defend the public the CPCs and Macdo those two entities that represent overwhelmingly the majority of criminal defendants in our Commonwealth they filed an emergency petition in our Supreme Judicial Court. And um, and it went, it's called a two eleven three, and it went up to the single justice, Justice Bud, Wayne Bud's wonderful daughter, um, who is a wonderful judge in her own right. But she then said, "Nope, I want the entire full Supreme Judicial Court bench to hear this because it's so important." And we had a four and a half hour hearing, Senator, over the phone. Those two things had never happened. In Chief Justice Gantz's 16 years as the Chief Justice, he said it's the first time he's dealt with it and he thinks possibly the first time in the Commonwealth. We had a four and a half hour hearing where all the sheriffs, all the DA's, the Department of Corrections, probation, there were every single stakeholder in the criminal justice system was on that call to try to figure out how we can flatten the curve and not forget individuals that are incarcerated, because as you know, Senator, we've seen these hot spots in veterans homes, in nursing homes, and they have the same layout, almost like many of our prisons, unfortunately, where we're seeing clusters of people um, and, you know, unfortunately the soldiers home in Chelsea has had, or Holyoke, right, has had some horrible deaths of our veterans. We're seeing hot spots in our nursing homes and and luckily our Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney are looking into that. And certainly as the DA, we're looking into Chelsea and other places. But we need to make sure that we're also speaking about our incarcerated population because they are often invisible and people forget about them.
0: So, so there's been, pretty much a shutdown of the private sector in Massachusetts and across the country, but there has been a frightening uptick in gun sales uh, during this crisis. Uh, And so can you speak to the correlation between the work which your office continues to do and to curb gun violence in our state and this incredible uptick where there are gun dealers who are actually saying, business has never been better <laughs> drive in drive in gun sales we'll just yeah. come we'll come out to the curb and uh, and sell you and sell you the gun and uh we need drive-in testing for covid yeah. i'm not sure we need drive-in drive-in purchases of guns so talk about that a little bit how you're viewing that? sure yeah.
1: yeah we've had unfortunately senator uh, senator an uptick in gun violence um if we look at April of this year compared to April of last year, the shootings that have happened. Unfortunately, um, Wednesday, April 15th, we had our, a homicide. A young woman, um, Alyssa King, was, was murdered. Um, and then on Saturday, April 18th, we, she is alive, we are happy to say, but a 10-year-old girl was shot through a wall Um, There was a gathering of about 50 people in an apartment next door to hers and somebody discharged a weapon. It went through several walls and and hit a 10-year-old girl. So, you know, many of these guns, Senator, you know, are not being held by somebody who has a license to carry, right? These are illegal firearms. And there's always going to be that tension of our Second Amendment and people that lawfully are purchasing firearms, as opposed to, um, individuals, and certainly some people in this category are using them in a way, you know, with many of our mass, sh- um, you know, our active shooters or our mass shooters, they had a license to carry some of those firearms, right? And it's why we've, you've worked so hard to, you know, try to ban assault rifles and bump stocks and other things like that. But many of the 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 gun violence um, crime scenes I go to, Senator, it's, it's an individual that has a, an illegal firearm. So we have to think about how can we be more proactive to hold the original purchaser of that gun, even if it was seven or eight years ago and it has fallen into the hands of maybe that gun has a life that has touched, you know, and a death, right? That has deceased or killed many different people potentially. If we have stronger laws that to the law-abiding people, when you misplace your firearm, if you lose it or if you sell it and you don't have the right uh, paperwork or you haven't reported it appropriately, you will be held accountable for whatever that gun does for the rest of its life. Maybe that would be enough, right, to potentially put the fear of you-know-what into people to say, no nobody's using my gun or the second i notice it's missing i'm reporting it even if it's my loved one or a relative or a partner or somebody you know that i want to potentially protect but we have to do better but there is always going to be that tension senator from the people that lawfully have a firearm and are saying out loud why are you making it harder for me i'm not the one shooting somebody on the corner of you know Mass Ave and you know Tremont Street or or what have you. It, it's it. We need to make sure that delicate balance is always spoken about.
0: Yeah, and it seems like a long, long time ago. It's only December, but <laughs> I was able I was able to add twenty five million dollars to the federal budget for the first time in history, so that the Centers for Disease Control could do the research on the causes of gun violence in our society. And that was the NRA blocking it literally for 25 years. So I won that in December, Um, and um, it's still ultimately a big problem because upwards of 40,000 people a year, you know, it's amazing.
1: And 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 we we are so grateful that you did that center because the fact that we don't look at gun violence, we we test automobiles, right? We test everything else and and you've spoken about this many times you know the the number of deaths as a result of automobiles used to be exorbitantly high and as a result of them doing testing and monitoring and capturing data and looking at potential solutions um, we've been able to, of course, anyone that dies in an automobile death is one too many people, but the fact that we've been able to flatten that curve and make it significantly safer with seat belts and other things that we've done, we need to start capturing that data with guns and look at it as the public health crisis that it actually is as opposed to just a criminal justice issue.
0: And a preventable uh, public health crisis. You know, 100%. if you put in place the safeguards, I mean, we go back, Actually, this is unbelievable, but in January, Donald Trump actually proposed in his budget in January, a 40% cut in the public health service doctors and nurses, a 20% cut in the CDC budget and a 10% cut in the NIH budget. This is uh, at the point where there's already a coronavirus pandemic uh, that's beginning in China and we can already see it. So prevention is a big part of all of this and the fact that that 25 million is in, I consider that to be a great victory, Uh, but then we'll have to have the CDC do the work and make the reporting. Now there's another issue, however, where there's a reporting issue uh, the other way, which is that there's been a reported drop in the number of child abuse cases that are being reported, the number of domestic abuse cases that are being reported ordinarily before coronavirus kids are in school and maybe the teacher sees, hey, there's something wrong or the woman is at work and people can say, hey, there's something wrong. Now, everyone is being asked to stay home. Can you talk a little bit about this issue and what kind of concern you have about what might be going on? Very
1: significant concerns, right? So our CAC, it's called the Child Advocacy Center Center, that does amazing work for young people that are the victims of, sexual assault or or violence um we their numbers have been have been plummeted um but we know that these harms are still happening um i can tell you senator i think you know i'm the guardian of of some of my nieces and i'm also a a licensed um, foster parent in the, the commonwealth of massachusetts i'm on what's called the emergency list so when something happens and a 51A is filed and nobody is able to take those children um, in a, a within their family, um, they pick up the phone and call somebody on the emergency list to see if they can get emergency housing for them, just even for the night. And when I tell you, Senator, my phone has been ringing almost off the hook recently, right, from DCF. That's our Department of Children and Families. But it is really scary. You hit it on the head in that Many of our first responders are teachers, right? The nurses, the school nurses are um, admins that work in that school that see these young people every day and can tell something about Rachel looks different today. I'm not just talking about obviously the physical manifestations. If they see a bruise or a cut those are obvious signs that they're mandated reporters and they say it, but when a child's withdrawn, when they seem tired, when they're irritable, when they're acting outside of what they normally present, if a child's on an um, uh, an individualized uh, education plan um, and they are exhibiting behaviors that maybe the teacher hasn't seen before, there are eyes and ears for the wellness of our young people. You also are absolutely correct that in domestic violence, overwhelmingly women, but of course we know what happens in every single relationship, irrespective of your gender or orientation is sometimes work is the place you get to leave your, you know, leave your, your, your home and go and feel valued and go and feel appreciated or loved or um, safe, right? And then you unfortunately have to return back to a place where your batterer um, shares a a home with you or or a living situation with you. So, you know, COVID-19 has really exposed, I think a lot of gaps in our system and great leadership like you, which I'm excited about, is going to hopefully let us learn from this and adapt really quickly so that we are even better when we come out of this and we will come out of this
0: yeah and um uh, and talk a little bit if, just to add a little you ha- your daughter can you just just we'll go off on oh. this for a second talk about your daughter the athlete and uh, oh, yeah. how good she is as an athlete and what this this pandemic is going to deny her the opportunity to do? I think people would like to hear your personal Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I am a proud track mom. Um, I have a 16-year-old daughter, Peyton Rollins, who um, I, of course, adore as her mother. But um, she also is quite a a track athlete and um, has had a really, she works incredibly hard. But she has won several national medals and broke some national records. Um, she holds the, the the record in Massachusetts um, for middle school uh, hurdling, and um, she was the number one freshman in the United States of America last year at the New Balance um, High School Nationals. And so she had qualified this year um, to run as a sophomore. And COVID nineteen happened, and they um, they canceled High School Nationals. And so. Peyton goes to a school called, as you know, Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols, a great independent school in Massachusetts, and I'm an alum from that school as well. Um, it's really exposed to me, Senator, the, the disparities between our public school system, honestly, and uh, private school, um, and maybe even some of our parochial schools or our charter schools as well. Uh, my daughter has not missed a beat um, at Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols. She is up every morning as if she were going to physically leave and go to school she's on her laptop she is zooming into all of her classes her teachers are engaged she has homework she has projects she's doing Um, she is still working out with her track coach (laughs) um, virtually you know or doing through her computer working out. It's harder to hurdle. I won't let her set those up in our house, but she's doing that. But you know, what's tough is my my niece, who's in fifth grade in Boston Public Schools, the public schools are working hard to try to engage, but it's not nearly as much as a private high school is able to give um, their clientele and their students. So I'm seeing a big juxtaposition, even in my own home, Senator, about the Access to education and care um, that some of our students are receiving, but I am a proud mom. Luckily, she's only a sophomore. So she's going to be back and have a great junior year and um, and hopefully a great senior year as well where she's actually out there. um, Breaking records, I hope and being a good sport um, and getting better at her trade.
0: Yeah, so what you what what you're saying is that the coronavirus is exposing a lot of the inequality that exists in our country based on race, based on income. Uh, Chelsea is a good example. Here's a community that has a high percentage of uh, Dominican uh, 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 immigrants to the United States. Now, the interesting thing is that 80% of them have been determined to be essential workers. Did so they have to stop the- oh, by sanitation, in the department store, in the, uh, in the supermarket, uh, they have to show up delivering for for uh, the for the, stu- for the uh, restaurant that they might work. They're essential, and, yeah. and and yet at the same time, like you're saying, they're having the highest percentage yeah. uh, of exposure to coronavirus. So, you just used education as a perfect example. Uh, but uh, could you talk a little bit about what your hopes are in terms of what this has unveiled? in terms of the inequality in our society who gets exposed to this disease uh, and what you see going forward
1: right and so i think it's it's exposed right all of the health equity issues that we have and it's put our inequities on full display right i was just reading an article about that and the mass public health um, association just said latinx individuals in massachusetts are three times more likely or at a time three times more than their white counterparts are getting um exposed or, or positively testing for covid 19. black community 2.5 um t- more times per capita and when we look at the percentage of the people in boston 15 to 17 percent of them are latinx 50 percent Um, as, as recently as today in the globe, a doctor said about 50% of the people in hospitals for COVID-19 are, um, are Latinx. So what I hope this does is this just, it it requires us to start having not just conversations, but really strongly moving toward, um, equity, right? And I was really proud on, on April 10th to have an op-ed, uh, piece with, uh, Representative John Santiago, who's also a doctor, um, and U.S. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, and I all wrote just about the sort of standards um, of care issues that we were concerned about. Where we're happy that our legislature just recently changed some of that, because essentially it was like, who, how we're going to ration out our ventilators, and if you have any underlying, um, you know, comorbidity factors. Uh, many people of color and poor people have, unfortunately, that you aren't going to be eligible potentially for a respirator. And what's great, Senator, is with people like you and Congresswoman Presley and others that speak out about injustice and inequity, once we're heard, I have to believe that the change is going to come, right? And we will demand it. Um, But what I hope that's happening is people are chronicling all of these inequities, and we're going to get a new crop of, of um, individuals that are willing to um, assist, you know, leaders like yourself in your plight to continue to change um, Massachusetts and our country, right, to make it a better and more equitable place, whether those are volunteers that can help um, with you know, either campaigns or other other matters that we're dealing with, or if they have a particular expertise, if they can um, be involved in hearings in the Boston City Council or in front of our legislature, mm-hmm. have your voice be heard. I think we're, I'm hopeful that those are some of the changes that are gonna come out because we have seen, you know, I sadly just went to um, my first funeral for a person, um, you know, that died of COVID-19. This is real, these, these, this is happening. And when we see the number creeping up in our Commonwealth um, and the, the stark disparities that we're seeing, we really need to start talking about this because good intentions are no longer enough. We need action and change.
0: Yeah, we can, we can see very clearly that there weren't enough protections in nursing homes, that yeah. these are very vulnerable older people and they did not have the protective equipment. The people who were hired to take care of them, they did not have protective equipment. And so you just add that together, wait a little while, and you have absolutely tragic stories in nursing homes all across the Commonwealth and all across the country. And these are people with Alzheimer's, other diseases who are very vulnerable. They cannot protect themselves by definition. And then you look at the other side of it and it's, uh, Latinx, African American, the poorest, the immigrants, they're the ones who are also exposed. And when you add yeah. up those two numbers, we're going to see that it ultimately was the most vulnerable. That's veterans. it is.
1: And and even you know, and veterans who have served our country and put their life on the line for us to have the ability to have our our, our opinions and our freedom and now are being exposed um, because you know, private companies that run these veterans' homes or soldiers' homes are cutting costs and don't want to pay for appropriate staffing levels. Like, completely unacceptable. And, you know, just to echo what you said, all of these essential workers that are immigrants or poor people who don't get to Skype into meetings, you know, let's make sure they're really essential when we come out of this and they get a living wage and they get, you know, health care. And they get benefits and they get the protections that many of us have in our job right now um, because they're keeping us alive, quite
0: frankly. Uh, absolutely. And, and yeah, we, we're going to need like an FDR moment here where <laughs> yeah. we look at all these essential workers and we say, well, are they entitled to child care? Are they entitled to sick leave? Are they entitled to you know A good minimum, you know, uh, sustainable wage? Are they entitled? So I think we can have a very healthy debate now that a face has been put on who all these people are from percent And yep. Dorchester, and, uh, and Lawrence, and Brockton, who are all working right now as we're all being asked to shelter. And we're going to have, a, in my opinion, a big obligation that we're going to have to pay back to them to protect their families going forward. And I'll give you another example. It's this whole uh, Paycheck Protection Program, which is the, the program to help businesses, small businesses. So here's what we learned. We put in 350 billion. And it turns out that there's a whole bunch of very sophisticated uh, small businesses that might have 200, 300, 400 employees. They figured out how to get to the front of the line and kind of drain the resources. Well, who who was left behind? Well, minority businesses. Women owned businesses, they were left behind. So we just had a big fight with McConnell, Mitch McConnell and we said well we'll give you another three we'll give you another 300 billion or so but we want 60 billion of it just set aside for minority-owned businesses women-owned businesses yeah they can't compete they don't have accountants and all kinds of legal teams downtown that can help them we just want an application process because it would be tragic uh if in Roxbury in Dorchester hundreds of these smaller businesses, minority-owned businesses, couldn't survive. And when we were back in August and September, that could be catastrophic for the community because we were just starting to see a real economic revival. A hundred,
1: yeah, right. And you think about Lynn and Lawrence and Brockton and Everett and all over our Commonwealth where you're right, there are these vibrant communities, um, individuals that have stepped out and on faith to... um, give their talents to the, the, the community, right? Um, and they are not able to either pay their workers or um, withstand because their rent is still due, right? They're not bringing in any, um, any money through the front door. So keep, please keep fighting there. I do have to say something funny. I got a text from a girlfriend about a comment that she claimed the president made, which I didn't believe her, but. Did he honestly, like Lysol, I think, had to just issue a statement that you should not be spraying disinfectants down. Like, what is happening here? Is this real, Senator?
0: We have a president, you know, I'm married to a doctor. I'm married to a woman who became assistant surgeon general of the United States and uh, retired, is a two-star admiral. You married up, you married up. Way up, way up. (laughs) <laughs> and all these doctors, they're all looking on as Donald Trump says, you know, a little bit of Lysol would be good for you. Huh? And oh my God. So it's just scary. I look at Tony Fauci, I look at Deborah Burks just standing there each day, knowing that they have to aspire to a certain percentage of their thoughts going unspoken as they try <laughs> to come up and kind of diplomatically try to clean it up so that bad medical advice is not given to people and uh, then he, then he's surprised that the governor of georgia is opening up barbershops and bowling alleys and and yeah. and having people come in uh to uh be exposed to the coronavirus and he's saying He's going too far. Well, who do you think his model is, Mr. President? His
1: model is you. And there's some amazing people on on social media that are saying to black and brown people, like, don't go anywhere until they start opening golf clubs and, you know, private, the the place where the Donald Trumps of the world go, right? Like, we don't want you to go to get your hair cut um you know a, again like you can you can not have a fresh lineup right now wait until they open golf courses and other places we're usually not allowed um and then then it's safe for us to go out
0: Yeah. so uh it's um you know it, it's a scary time but it's great to know uh, uh rachel district attorney rachel rollins that you are on the job and you're showing the smart way in which we're gonna be navigating through this. Uh, and maybe if you have one message that you might want to deliver to people who are watching right now, one uh, one final thing that you might want that people to keep 100%. in mind. 100%. Yeah, please. I
1: want everyone watching. You must partake in the census. You have to get out and vote. Um, you You have to be involved. I know you're exhausted. Believe me, I am exhausted too. But we are in the fight of our lives right now with respect to making sure that we are decent, we are um, upstanding, we have character, and we are treating um, everyone, whether they have a voice or the strength to speak for themselves at all, with equity and dignity and transparency and respect. Um, So please, please, please let your voice be heard. We will fight for you if you're fearful. If you're an immigrant, In Massachusetts, I have done it. The senator has done it. Um, There are people that will protect you, but your voice has to be heard. Get involved and answer your census, as well as when upcoming elections are happening. You must, must, must vote, because you need leaders like this person right here, Senator Markey, who's going to fight, fight, fight for you, Um, and everything you stand for. So that is my message. And then also get off of your couch and go for a walk if you have to, because we, we have to take care of our physical and mental health as well in this process. Even if we're fortunate enough to have everything we need at our fingertips, mental health is still really important and physical health as well. If you can socially distance and just even breathe some air from outside, I want you to take care of yourselves.
0: You're great, Rachel, and I'm just going to follow up on the census over in Chelsea. Perfect example. Um, Gladys Vega runs the Chelsea Collaborative over there, and Love her. Are hundreds of people lined up to get food, you know. But yet, many of them are, are afraid to go over and get tested uh, because ICE might be waiting for them. Well, ice, ICE is not waiting for them. They should go over and get tested but they should also not be afraid to answer the census because they are protected the census as well. And that's the best way to protect people in the community is to make sure you're counted because that's where the dollars for education, for healthcare, for opportunities are all gonna flow from.
1: 100%, and like we've done before, Senator, I just got off the phone with the president of the Chelsea Chelsea City Council, and we were talking about Gladys, who I know well, If ICE is bothering them and things are happening, we will get involved, I will get involved. I've sued ICE before, we will will fight to make sure that you are free to answer your census, you are not not allowed to be retaliated against, there are people that will help you, Um, please know that. So, Senator, thank you for letting me speak to you, you know what a fan I am of yours. Please, please, please keep fighting for us.
0: Thank you, thank you. Rachel Rollins, our great district attorney, the model for the country. Thank you so much for uh, all of your great leadership. And thank all of you. You stay safe. Listen to the district attorney. You stay safe. You stay distance, but go out for your walk. Get a little exercise. You want to? You don't want to become a couch potato totally. You got to get out there and uh, keep your health uh, intact, so that uh, uh, so that you are in a better condition to help other people. Thank you, Rachel. Talk Take to care. You Thank you for tuning in to Markey on the Mic. Get involved in our grassroots movement today. Visit edmarkey.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And remember, the bosses might tell us where to sit. No one tells us where to stand. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay in touch.